And uh, it's been interesting, each, each of these uh, four minor prophets, they've of course had many similarities, but um, some differences. Um, in Amos, that book was written primarily to Israel, although it listed all the other countries around Israel. But what he was saying in Amos to Israel and to God's people is that you have become indistinguishable from all the nations around you. You look just like them. Whatever they hold as important and true, you hold as important and true. Whatever they do uh, morally, business-wise, you do the same morally, business-wise. You have become just like them. You had uh, given yourselves into slavery, into prostitution, into theft, injustice, and even human sacrifice. Then we came to Obadiah, just, just one chapter. Obadiah written for a specific group of people, the Edomites. Uh, the Edomites were characterized by their pride. They were proud of where they lived. They lived in the clefts of these mountains. They looked down upon other people, literally and figuratively. They thought they would be safe because of where they lived. They took uh, comfort in the things that they owned. They took comfort in their allies. But even worse, they piled on when Israel was being taken captive, when they were being taken away. They plundered the homes of their brothers. And so uh, there was a message of great judgment upon them. And then last week we spent looking at, at Jonah. And Jonah should have been for us a real bright spot. Uh, and, and yet it is a bright spot. Jonah goes to Nineveh, goes to the Assyrians. And we looked at the Assyrians over the past few weeks and the awful things that the Assyrians did, the atrocities they committed against human beings. Um, awful things, awful, awful things. You know, sometimes when Christians think the world's as worse as it's ever been, just read the Old Testament and do a little bit of a study on how they treated children, how they treated slaves, how women were treated. Um, awful things going on. And um, Jonah gets sent to Nineveh. He preaches a gospel of, uh, really a gospel of judgment. He says, you've got 40 days and then things are going to just, you're gonna, it's going to be overturned. And the beautiful thing about Jonah is we see that our God relents from what he was going to do because the people turned and repented. The other thing that was really great about Jonah is God does what God does. God will do what God said he will do. And I love Jonah because even when the prophet himself doesn't want to see this great awakening, this revival, God says, no, I'm going to turn the hearts of the king and the people towards myself. Um, in these last three, I have really stressed the conditional nature of the prophecies. So uh, it's important for you to understand that. When, when you hear these prophecies of judgment and doom, they are conditioned upon, uh, they're given not just as a, uh, this is going to happen uh, fatalistically, get ready for it, but they are given as it is time. There is still time for you to turn to the living God. And so now we come this morning to Micah. The book of Micah. Now Micah's audience is primarily Samaria and Jerusalem. Two very prosperous cities in his day. Samaria and Jerusalem. And then particularly it's to their leaders. Uh, the prophets and the priests and all those who had governmental power. Um, they, they were all kind of those, those roles, and we see it in Scripture often. Christ is broken down into these three roles. Christ is a prophet, 
prophet tells, here's what God says. That's what a prophet does. Christ is a priest. The priest represents the people on behalf of God. So the priests were always in charge of you would go to the priest and you would say, I have committed this sin. I have done this. And the priest would say, in order for you to be made right with God, here is the sacrifice you're to perform. All right? So Christ is a prophet, speaks the word of God. He is a priest. He offers himself up as a sacrifice. And he is a king. And human beings need those three roles. We need those three roles in our life all the time. We are made as a people that need rule. We need direction. We need government. We need a prophet to tell us, here's what the Lord, Word of God says. And we need a priest. Here's how we are made right with God. All of those roles in Jerusalem and Samaria were corrupt. Every single one. The priests weren't doing what they were supposed to do. They were accepting bribes. The prophets weren't doing what they were supposed to do. In fact, you read in Micah where he says to the prophets, stop prophesying. Micah, stop prophesying. You're not in agreement with the rest of us. Stop saying these things to the people. We've all agreed that the message we're going to give to the people is a message of prosperity and wealth and ease and peace. And here you come telling the people they must repent, they must turn. Uh, the prophet, the priest, and the king were all corrupt. So in chapter uh, 2, verse 6, do not preach, they said. Once you not preach such things, disgrace will not overtake us. Right? Now, that's an easy thing to preach. And I want to tell you, as I read this, I think it is, it could just, we could just really overlay our culture and our religious culture, especially in our country. Right? You have the option as people to go and find a message that you like on any Sunday. I really want to hear about this. I would really like to feel good about this. I really like someone that's going to affirm the choices I am making. You can find someone, even under the banner of Christian, that will tell you what you want to hear. That's what was going on in Micah's day in Jerusalem and Samaria. But the fact is, as he writes in chapter 3, verse 2, you who hate the good and love the evil. He's speaking to the prophets, the priests, the kings, the rulers. You who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from their bone. In verse 10, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Here it is, prophet, priest, and king, right? Verse 11, its heads, the king, give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets Practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. That's the religious climate of Micah's day. That is the religious climate of our day. Not just the leaders but also those who follow the leaders. Some break Micah down into a book of a covenant lawsuit. Here's what our God has promised. Here's what you are required. Here's what God said he would do. Here's how you have broken it. Uh, and here's what the response is. Um, in chapter 6, he takes it further and says to the people, and it is God speaking to them. And so think of it in this lawsuit, God imploring the people, Oh, my people. What have I done to you? 
How have I wearied you? Answer me, he says. Verse 4, I brought you from the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from a house of slavery, and I sent you before Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened? The Gilgal, you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And as a result, in chapter 7, Micah himself fought despair. He really fought despair as he gave the message that God gave him to give and it seemed no one was listening. He writes in 7.1, Woe is me, I've become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no ripe fig that my soul desires. And yet, the end of Micah, I mean, you, can't, you just can't write anything better. Uh, the end of chapter 7, and we'll get there in a few moments, but verse 20, he says, of chapter 7, you'll show faithfulness to Jacob. He keeps going back to this, and you'll show steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. See, Hassel Bullock uh, summarizes the book, and I'm just going to read a chapter out of his commentary uh, and, and ask yourself how similar does it sound to where we are even today. He writes, the balance of the moral ledger of ancient Judah was regularly an indication of the deeper spiritual condition. Let me say that again. The balance of the moral ledger of ancient Judah was regularly an indication of the deeper spiritual condition. Those two things cannot be divorced. Right? You cannot divorce your moral behavior from what you believe religiously. Even if you say, I'm not a religious person, I'm an atheist, whatever, you can't, you can't separate what you believe and what you hold to as right and wrong from your behavior. So the writer is saying that, that, that Judah, Israel, Samaria, Jerusalem, they looked exactly like the nations around them. Micah, he says, had focused his insights on the leadership. They were the ones who were responsible for justice and had an inverted sense of good and evil. Instead of feeding the flock like respectable shepherds should, they had fed off the flock and molested the sheep who were at their mercy. He writes they were at their mercy because unlike today, the sheep in those days didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a Bible. Right? They, 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 they had to go and, and, and listen and try to decipher this person who claims to be a priest or a prophet of, of God. Is he really telling the truth? Right? The people really were at the mercy of their prophets and priests. And that's why in Micah the judgment on the prophets and the priests and the king is so severe. But you know what? I, I think today a lot of Christians fall in that same mindset. I'm not going to question what Rev says. <laughs> Maybe you should. Right? You should. I'm not going to question what this person teaches or what that person teaches. I'm not going to become a student of God's Word to know. What is God like? What does He require? What is good for Him? What is right? What is moral? Rather, we look at the group around us and we've kind of come to some agreement of, of kind of, here's, here's kind of what we all do here and here's kind of what we all do there and, and we're all kind of in agreement to this. He said, these people were at the mercy and these shepherds had not fed. 
says their hatred of justice could be seen in the perverted way they did their job, building Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. The time was so destitute of justice, they were like a vineyard that had been stripped of its fruit. Their Olympic performance of injustice had turned man against man, and their ambidextrous ability to do evil had made them, even the best of them, like a briar or the most upright like a thorn bush. Friend and foe had become indistinguishable. And the security, listen to this, the security of family and kinship had become a battleground of selfish interests. Let that sink in for a minute. The security of the family and kinship had become a battleground of selfish interests. Civil leaders, priests alike, were motivated by financial gain. Now let me tell you that that is absolutely what idolatry does to a people. Right? And, and, and if we put our lives and our value and our security and all of that into, let's say, business, you can succeed in business by being immoral. In fact, some people might say you can succeed best in business by being immoral. You can succeed in your academics by being immoral, by placing all of your life in the hands of a teacher or a, pre, a, pro, a professor or a system. Right? You can succeed in, in other goals of life by being immoral. I mean, we see it in our society, don't we? A man who is judged by uh, how, how much money he makes, we kind of brush aside. How has he treated his family? How has he treated his employees? How has he treated his neighbor? You can pursue idols through immoral means. You can't pursue our God through immoral means. Our morality will deeply reflect what our hearts love. And, and we go after these types of idols that they were going after because we think that they will give us security. They think that that will give us some form of standing when in fact they enslave. They enslave. Um, our God demands our whole heart. Idols only demand that you perform outwardly. Right? It, it, it's, it's similar to a husband doing things for a wife, but not showing any sense of emotional connection and value. It's interesting. My dad, uh, lately, I've just I've been thinking about him a lot. Um, one of the things we used to do before the term flex you know, the humble flex. I like that. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a great term that's been added into our vernacular, the humble flex, right? Uh, my dad would flex on me, and here's how he would flex on me. I got my first job where we actually had a business phone. It was a retail store, and I had my own desk and a business card. I was quite proud of myself. The receptionist would say, hey, Mark, you got a call, line three. I'd run over to line three, press the button, think, all right, I'm about to sell something. And you know who it would be? My dad's secretary. <laughs> Hi, is this Mark? Yes. Will you hold for Dr. Kuiper? 
So I paid the receptionist in my office. I'm like, will you call my dad's office? And when he gets on the phone, will you tell him to hold for his son, Mark? <laughs> right? It was just, I don't know if you know what that means, but, but when you have to hold for someone, you know what that means? That means the person who is reaching out to you is so busy that to dial those numbers is going to mess up his day. It means that person's so busy that to be on hold could cost him thousands of dollars. It means he's more important than you, right? Let me tell you something about our God. He is more important than you. He is not to be trifled with. He is not to be given a portion of your time when it works for you and when your life is settled down and you're not nearly as busy. He is to be number one. He is to be above everything. He's to control your calendar, your checkbook, where you live, and what you do. You see, the, the, the more we compartmentalize our God, the more we give him a place that's safe from interfering in our lives, oh, the worse off all of society will be. The level of human flourishing will be directly proportioned to our level of submission to God. And so the sermon in the sentence this morning is that Jesus comes and he fulfills the Micah mandate. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. That you and I, that we may do real good works. Uh, the text that we've got right up there, you have 5-2. Uh, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Do you remember when uh, Herod, the, the Herod was afraid that a new king was being born? And he went and he asked uh, the Jewish leaders, didn't he? He said, hey, uh, supposedly there's a star, there's this prophecy, some king is to be born. Where would that happen to be? Right? And they tell him, oh, he's to be born in Bethlehem. Now, right at the start of the whole gospel. Don't you think, hey, um, you guys who told Herod the prophecy of where the Messiah would come from, why will you not follow him? I mean, right from the very beginning. They should have been clued in way before anybody else was. But look at the promise. One who is to be ruler. Jesus comes in the, in the, in a, in a, as a baby in a manger, but he comes to rule, to bring righteous, just rule. And you know what? Every human being longs for it. They may not say it. They may think anarchy is better until uh, they're the weak ones, right? Every human being longs. Oh, what glory it would be to have a just and righteous ruler. And so Jesus is coming as the ruler, as the king. He is coming as the prophet. He is coming as the priest. And in Advent, we are reminded that our world needed much more, really, than just education rules. Our world needs salvation, complete and perfect. And now we come to our main text this morning, Micah chapter 6. Please stand if you are able.
Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Again, think about this in this covenant lawsuit, the people coming to God and asking this question. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Have you ever asked yourself that? I ask myself that sometimes when life isn't going the way I want it to go. What next, God? What else do you want from me? What do I have left to give? Will you be pleased with this? Will you be pleased with that? Now, it's interesting because in these first two verses, what, what um, the people are asking is, basically they're saying, this is what we give to our idols. This is what we give to our idols. This is what we give to our, our jobs, our, our reputations, or whatever. Uh, we bow down before them. We offer. We give money. And so he, it breaks it down really into four things. He says, if we bow down to him on high, right? If, if I make this public declaration, if I sing loud and publicly, if I put a fish on my car, if I wear Christian t-shirts, if I swear off Bud Light, Will that be enough? What about burnt offerings? If I give enough money, if I give enough money for three rivers to get a classroom and some new windows, maybe, will that make you happy? If I give to the poor, I'll give it anonymously. Will that make you happy? What about if my generosity is just so abundant? Will that make you happy? God, will you want me to give you my child? Make no mistakes. The idols of our culture ask for all of those things. The idols of sexual pleasure and freedom. What is sacrificed? Our children. God, can we give you all of these things? Will, 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 this, will this please you, oh God? And then here's the answer. We'll just take a few minutes on the answer. But this is the answer. This is what God says. And when he says this, he is pointing to the work of his son. Okay? He says three things. Here is what you are to do. Here's what he's told you. Oh, man, here is what is good. And this is what the Lord requires. Number one, to do justice. To do justice. Not to feel justice. Not to march for justice. Not to change your Facebook profile for justice, but to do it. To set your life at doing what is right and just and righteous. To do justice. Our God loves justice. He works justice. Christ came to fulfill justice. Without Christ coming and dying and being raised from the dead, we would be in our sins. The justice of God would have been poured out on 
all of us, we must do justice. James 4 says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We often think about sin as doing bad things, but sin is also not doing the right things. God defines then what is good. In this place and in Micah's culture, good was called evil and evil was called good. We've gotten there in our society. Good is called evil. Parents struggling to raise children in right and morally pure right, are called evil. And evil is called good. And Jesus comes and he fulfills God's justice. The child is born to take away our sins through God's justice. But make no mistake, Christian justice is much deeper than fairness. It's much deeper than communism. It is doing right. Psalm 89, it says, Our king, his foundation is righteousness and justice. They're the foundation of his throne. And he says, steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So Christian, you ask yourself in all of life's little decisions, not what is fair, not even what I deserve, but what is just and right in God's eye? Not my own feelings. What is just and right in God's eye? And, and you must spend time in his word. You must spend time reading narrative portions of how he deals with people in his word to understand what God's justice is. The second thing he says is to love mercy or to love kindness, to love it. Uh, and, and there's no way we're going to love mercy and kindness unless we've received it. Right? We're, just not, we're not going to be able to, to share it with others. We're not going to be able to, to, to love it and celebrate it until we've received it. And, oh, Christian, when you have received the mercy and the kindness of God, and then your life goes down its path, and there comes someone who wrongs you, and you have an opportunity to react in a way that is kind and merciful, you will find great joy in that. And it will be the blessing of the world. You must love it. In Micah and the other prophets that we've looked at, God's kindness um, he calls out of people on their sinful behaviors. God is being kind in every one of these books. God is being kind in Jonah when he says, you've got 40 days, it's going to be overturned. He is being kind, and we are kind when we share the truth about God's judgment, about his morality, about his righteousness. In Titus 3, it says it's God's kindness that brings us to repentance. Psalm 85, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness, he says, and peace Kiss one another. Isn't that beautiful? Beautifully poetic. Righteousness and peace kiss one another through God's mercy and through his kindness. If you are an unkind person, you may have never experienced the kindness of God. If you struggle with kindness, to show kindness, then you must dive into what God has done for you. In the setting that Micah writes, all the benefits and blessings that the leaders enjoyed... Uh, they believed came by their own hand. Right? And when you believe all the best blessings and benefits have come by your own hand, you tend to be less kind to others. Especially those who of their own doing and their own fault find themselves in terrible situations. If you rest upon yourself as your savior in that area, you find it is hard to be 
kind to those. We see this clearly in our society today in the way that the poor are treated, don't we? The poor pay more for their cars, pay more for their groceries. They get taken advantage of in many ways. Brothers and sisters, caveat emptor, buyer beware, is not a biblical doctrine. We must love kindness. We must wake up in the morning and say, Father, are there those that need the kindness that you have given to me, that has overflowed to me? Are there people in my life, in my walk, even this day, that I can show kindness to? Especially those that don't deserve it, because you've shown it to me and I don't deserve it. Thirdly, he says to walk humbly with your God. Our God wants us to walk with him, to have an ongoing relationship of dependence and worship. And so when we structure our worship, it is how your life is to be structured. In the morning you wake up because there is a call to the Lord your God on your day. This is the day the Lord has made. We rejoice and be glad in it. He has given you breath. He has given you a walk. He has given you purpose. We wake up in the day and we say, how am I going to humbly walk with you this day, O Lord? Oh, would the world be a better place if Christians walked humbly with their God from breakfast to supper time? God, are you going to humble me today? How will I rely upon you today? How can I show forth your kindness and your grace? What are we to do? We're to do justice. What are we to love? We're to love mercy. And how are we to live? We're to live with a humble walk with our God. <coughs> Who is like the Lord our God? I want to go to uh, Micah 7. If you want to go back up one slide to that last. Uh, there we go. Micah 7. Um, who is like the Lord our God? Hear these words of assurance. Who is like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? For the remnant of his inheritance, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This was their hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never changes. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for being the prophet, the priest, and the king. We thank you for being truthful with your people. We thank you that you expose, oftentimes with our fists upraised to you, you expose the idolatry of our hearts. Father, we don't want to be different than those around us. We want to have everything that everybody else has plus be saved. We want you to provide for us more and more if we're just good or better than the average American. Oh, Father, will you make our hearts tuned to do what you love, to be a people that does justice, how we think and are concerned about your justice. We love mercy and we love kindness and we walk humbly with you. Seeing every day, Father, as an opportunity to grow more in an understanding of your love and kindness for us, to grow more in opportunities to be kind and loving to this world around us. Father, will you feed our souls from the body and blood of Christ?
We have fed our souls from all manner of things. We have beefed up our egos, accomplishing great things in our own name. Will you fill us with the sufficiency of your Son, who has done justice, who has meted out justice on our behalf, who has loved kindness on our behalf, and who he, being in every aspect God, humbled himself and became obedient, obedient even to a death on the cross. May we follow our big brother. May we follow our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all things. And, oh, Father, forgive us for giving you second, third, fourth place. Forgive us for treating you as a God that can be trifled with, a God that can be compartmentalized, a God that is there when we have some time, when things are tough. Oh, Lord, heal our sin-sick hearts. Amen.